0: If you're like me, you're hearing reports of projected deficits in the California budget next year and wondering what does this mean for budget lobbying that I am planning, that I am preparing for, and that is the subject of this excellent discussion I had recorded live this past Monday, November 14th. We talk about past uh, the past recession and what it was like to lobby under difficult budget circumstances the lessons learned and how folks are preparing for next year this is christina boss hamilton i am the founder of kbh advocacy i work with organizations that are seeking to build just communities i help with passing legislation and with securing budget funding if you want more information please go to the website www.kbhadvocacy.com. Enjoy. First, a quick message. Create genuine connections with your biggest supporters using text. Subtext is an award-winning texting platform that connects hosts with subscribers free from the chaos of social media and the clutter of email. Learn more by going to joinsubtext.com. Using build tracking software shouldn't be rocket science. We know that your time is valuable. Fast Democracy is a streamlined and easy to use build tracker that saves you time and allows you to focus on what really matters, advocating for policy. Visit fastdemocracy.com to learn more and don't forget to use the promo code blueprint. Hey everybody, thank you for joining. Scott, why don't we start with you? Would you like to give just a quick introduction?
1: Sure. So, hi, everybody. This is Scott Graves. I'm the research director at the California Budget and Policy Center. We are based here in Sacramento.
0: Awesome. And real quick for folks who want to look up resources, what is the website?
1: So you can find us at calbudgetcenter.org. That's where we've got all of our incredible research done by our incredible analyst team with the support of and leadership of everybody who works with us in, you know, outreach, comms, and advancement.
0: Awesome. Chris, would you mind doing an introduction?
2: Sure. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Christopher Sanchez. I'm a policy advocate at the Western Center Center on Law and Poverty. I apologize. I'm currently tuning in or joining from Washington, D.C., so I'm a bit delayed and my coffee is running out. And you can find our (laughs) our great work at uh, WCLP.org. We publish a lot of reports on the work we've done, and I'll pass it back.
0: Awesome. Thank you for being here, even though you are in Washington. And Jen, I'd love for you to just share a bit about yourself.
3: Hi, thanks so much. It's Jennifer Fearing. I am also in Sacramento. I run a small nonprofit focused advocacy firm called Fearless Advocacy. I've been lobbying at the Capitol for the better part of the last 15 years for a lot of beloved environmental, environmental justice, and other statewide associations of of NGOs. Our website is fearlessadvocacy.com, and we're excited to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: Wonderful. Okay, so I'll jump off. I'll do my own brief intro. My name is Christina Boss Hamilton. I know many of you from Twitter land, and I don't believe I've met you in real life. Some of you I do know from real life, so this is really super. I am a former labor lobbyist. I worked for 10 years as the lead lobbyist for the United Domestic Workers, representing IHSS providers which is where I cut my budget advocacy teeth, I should say. I didn't know for many years that there was any other type of lobbying. I thought budget lobbying was what most of us did, and then I realized that that wasn't the case. So I actually began in 2010, which was when the state was in the beginning of the Great Recession, which you know, meant that it was quite a difficult landscape. And like I said, I didn't know any better. And I just thought, you know, defensive lobbying to protect programs and services was what all lobbyists did. And uh, in 2021, I launched my own practice and I am now a consultant who works with different organizations on different issue areas, all around the justice framework or I should say values-oriented organizations that do work like protecting workers and their communities and the planet. So I'm so happy to have you all on because one of the things that I realized when I launched my practice was that the reality is most folks are not familiar with budget lobbying. It is very particular. It's a unique process. It actually has nothing to do with the legislative bill policy process and one of the things that has always kind of occurred to me is that if you aren't familiar with how budget works you are kind of disadvantaging yourself if you are trying to push legislation that has a price tag attached to it and you know there's varying opinions on whether Just focusing on a budget ask versus also lobbying a policy bill is a good strategy. I know there's pros and cons either way. I can tell you, in my opinion, in my experience, if you review veto messages from the last 10 years, you will see that a majority of policy bills that have big costs associated will get the same kind of veto message, which basically says this funding was not appropriated in the state budget. And for reasons I don't understand, we do see that kind of keep happening in, in certain <laughs> issue areas where these bills just unfortunately kept getting vetoed. And we want to open up the space for success, and that is through the budget process. And so I, I just have a lot of respect for folks who do budget advocacy, Who for folks who want to learn how to do it. This is a great opportunity to hear from Others in the space. And I would like this to be a conversation. So if folks want to raise their hand after our guests speak, you know, please do so and ask questions and share your thoughts. I'm seeing some friendly faces on here of people who have also been expert budget lobbyists. And I love that you're here so you can share your wisdom as well. Uh, Before we jump off, I'd love Scott if you gave us a quick what is actually looking to be the case when it comes to revenue collection and going into 2023 what is the reality when it comes to revenue in the budget next year
1: all right well thanks christina so i think it's no surprise a lot of folks if not everyone on this in the space right now realizes the state's revenue situation has been looking pretty precarious over the last few months. In part, this is because there's been a lot of tech sector layoffs. There has been gyration in the stock market. Stock market is down. Those have serious impacts on the state's personal income tax revenues. And I think many of us are aware that the PIT, the personal income tax, makes up a significant chunk of the state's general fund every year, somewhere in the range of uh, 60 cents out of every dollar in general fund revenues is coming from personal income taxes and a good chunk of that is coming from capital gains earned by those who, you know, are doing very well in an age of rising inequality and rising stock markets, although that certainly hasn't been the case over the last several months. So, you know, just to give you a couple of quick examples, for the last fiscal year, which ended in June, the revenues came in a few billion below expectations. Oh, no. Oops,
0: Scott's muted. Can he unmute? Scott. Scott, I oh, think we, sorry, sorry, no, no. I think that was my bad. I'm so sorry. I, I hit buttons and I don't know what happened. Keep going. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> Maybe, maybe you're trying to tell me I'm talking too much. I know. So.
0: I'm like, okay, put the guy on
1: pause. <laughs> so, you know, the bottom line on where we are right now in terms of revenues hitting in, you know, four months into this fiscal year is that I'll just, you know, there's some complications and technicalities here, but I'm just going to say it's looking iffy. That's already used jargon there, but it's looking iffy. And, you know, for the current period that we're, you know, this period that we're heading into, we are not talking about a budget, a budget cycle where we're going to be walking into a surplus. Just to remind everyone, a year ago, the Legislative Analyst's Office was projecting a state general fund surplus of around $31 billion. that eventually grew to $52 billion by the time of the Governor's May revision. We are not walking into a situation like that this year. We're probably walking into what the LAO calls very nicely a, quote, budget problem because we're going to be facing revenue shortfalls, and we're going to have much more specifics on that on on Wednesday. A lot of you might have seen the Ledge Analyst's Office tweet from earlier today where they said they're going to release their annual fiscal outlook on Wednesday, just a couple of days from now. And that is a really significant publication that we all need to pay attention to because that's going to be our first look at what the LAO, at least, is projecting are not just in terms of revenues for the current fiscal year, but heading into the budget year and the two or three years after that. So it's where we're going to get our first chance to see, you know, is this idea that we're kind of walking into a budget problem, a deficit situation. How bad is it going to be, at least according to the LAO? And then, of course, as we all know, governor's Department of Finance will release, the, they're, they're going to do their own estimates and they're going to release those with the governor's proposed budget somewhere by January 10th, could be the 9th, could be the
0: 10th. Great. Thank you. So, yeah, just to remind everybody, the constitutional de- constitutional deadline for the governor to introduce his January budget is Gen 10. And to just give a little bit of big picture, now that is just a proposal That proposal then goes to the legislature. It is heard by budget subcommittees according to issue area. So depending on what it is that you lobby on, you should identify which budget subcommittee is likely to be hearing those proposals. The subcommittees will start meeting generally in February and through the next several months. Um, they will hear the governor, what he wants to propose. They will hear what leadership and other legislators are proposing. And that's your opportunity as a stakeholder to submit your budget proposal and ask for consideration. That, that is the process that is not highlighted on paper. You know, that crazy flow chart that is, that's the policy bill process that has all the arrows and, you know, the first house and the second house. That is not happening here when it comes to budget. You are on your own to get yourself in front of the subcommittee consultants primarily, but the chairs, obviously, to put your proposal forward. And as I've said before, you want to get – this is when you want to put pencil to paper and draft the most comprehensive white paper that you can – showing what the problem is, what the proposed solution is, and you really want to keep a focus on the fiscal. You want to provide an estimate of how much you think your proposal is going to cost, how you came up with that estimate, and you know, thinking in terms of the investment for the state, why should they invest these dollars? Is there a return on that investment? What is the outcome in terms of the people of California? These are all the work. These are the things that I put on my fall budget checklist, because now is the time to be doing that important work. And so I would like to pass it to Christopher. Chris, do you want to share a couple of items that you, what, what you would be suggesting as also on the fall budget preparation checklist? What, what do you encourage advocates to be doing in these months leading up to the January budget?
2: Thank you. I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I would always encourage everybody is really building your coalition right now. How many people Mm. are going to join you and your folks to move a proposal forward. But it also, when you're doing that and um, talking to other organizations and you you also create the buzz around it, right? Because if if you, you, you build a really strong coalition, then other folks are talking about it to their legislators as they're doing their check-ins right now, saying, hey, what are you working on? Or what are some of your priorities? And then so, you know, maybe they're not gonna be what, you know, a, a key stakeholder in, in your coalition, but they're gonna be very supportive and it's just due to capacity or something of that nature. But it's on their list, and it's probably something they might talk to their legislator about right now. So I think, I think that's, that's, that's really big. And I, and I know when we build coalition that we've, we've typically had success. And, and sometimes there isn't, but that goes into my second point, really talking about the narrative right now. What are you doing to put articles in maybe your local newspaper? Or, you know, what kind of media work are you doing? And maybe you're not on camera, but maybe you're talking to a journalist and starting to do your pitches now that way there is a conversation and you don't have to say it's about the budget but just highlighting the issue that you're going to focus on if you're if you're doing a, a budget proposal about immigrants maybe you just do a story piece, a, a featured story piece, and and see how that lands in, in the media right now. That way, it's out there, and and folks are are, are looking at it and talking about it, and then it, it builds up to what your media plan may be during during the budget cycle. So I think those are are two two key points that I would say have to be on on your checklist right now.
0: That's awesome. I completely agree with you. I cannot understate the value of stakeholder coalition building because doing this on your own very difficult and generally not going to be as successful than doing it in coalition with other folks and Jen would you like to share your perspective as a lobbyist who's been on the ground for a long time getting into budget lobbying specifically
3: well sure, thanks. And I'm taking, you know, notes as I listen to a uh, Scott and Chris talk. But yeah, so I I'm one of those people who primarily my lobbying activities were confined to the bill making space and I got very used to the ske- the schedule, the tour the the tools. And the kind of approach to be successful in moving policy, moving state legislative efforts forward. And so I'm only a few years in, so I'm definitely the rookie on this call. But what I guess I would love to lay out are a series of questions. Like if I had a client call me tomorrow and say, hey, we want to we want to get something in the state budget. I just wanted to offer up a few questions that I would have from them right off the top. Is what you want to see done a kind of a local district ask, like an an earmark, or is it a statewide Uh. program funding ask? Because those are really different processes, Uh sort of efforts, and initiatives. Uh Are you looking for one-time funds or ongoing (laughs) funds? What is your fund source? Like, where would this money Uh. come from? And are you taking it away from anybody else's purpose? Like, (laughs) who else might have designs on that money? Um, Mm -hmm. Are you implementing a new law? Like, did you just pass a bill? Or did you just support a bill that was passed that now may have a BCP, a budget change proposal that's coming through finance? Or maybe not? Like, maybe there's not a plan to fund that new law, but you want to make sure it is funded? What, you know, is that what is that what the story is? And then Lastly, thinking about if it's not, if it's not that case, like, have you thought about a companion bill, you know, and maybe I'd love to hear the group talk about this as a as one strategy for what are the pros and cons of a strategy of having a more public conversation because the budget can be so murky and opaque, like what's the value of having a companion bill, maybe to update funding priorities. That's certainly something I've done with clients. So you have a bill moving Uh, through the process that allows uh you to have hearings and more, you know, more public conversations. And to be clear that you're modernizing, you know, the current funding priorities to go with your budget ask. So those are just some of the questions and considerations I'd be raising with folks who would be right to be engaging right now <laughs> if they yes. have aspirations around uh, getting an appropriation in next year's budget.
0: So Jen, you just pointed to probably the number one question that I get from clients and other organizations that I talk with, which is, should I do a policy bill and a budget request? And that is a really not simple yes or no answer for all the reasons you just said the number one consideration to me is how much work is involved when you're doing these things right like if you had unlimited resources and you have you know lots of staff and or volunteers people to be on the ground doing the lobbying doing both at the same time is probably ideal but again you're talking about two different processes right the budget subcommittee hearings are all happening at the same time as the policy bill committee hearings. And they're completely different. And so you're talking, you know, parallel tracks, different cast of characters. You can't assume that whatever conversations you're having on one side are being relayed to the folks on the other side. And basically what that means being frank is just twice the amount of work. Now, Again, like if you're coming from a space where you have those resources, absolutely. I think it does open, give you opportunities for to, for public messaging, for organizing. You know, people like to rally around bill numbers. It's a little bit easier to kind of explain to the public what you're trying to do than explaining a budget request. However, if you're not in that position, I'll tell you, in my experience, lobbying, you know, in-home supportive services for 10 years We did a lot of policy in the budget process, and we didn't necessarily do policy bills. There is disagreement on that in the building, and we may have some staff listening, you know, who feel like that's, you know, that's not appropriate. It should, policy should be debated through the policy bill process, and guess what? I totally agree with that. I don't know who started it, but I, I began in 2010 under Governor Brown, and under Governor Brown, his preference was all of our work on IHSS was done through the budget process, including policy that didn't have any price tag attached to it. So, you know, to answer another question, I get you don't necessarily need a policy bill. You could theoretically pass a budget trailer bill that has whatever policy you want in there. Now, the question really becomes political at that point, which is, is leadership on board with that approach? So I I would not give any blanket recommendation, very clear to folks listening. This is not me telling you don't do a policy bill, only that it's a complex question. And in fact, I, if any listeners want to raise their hands and speak to this, because I think the, the answer depends on the situation. And Chris, would love your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I have a couple of different approaches to this. And I think one, you know, let's take the playbook out of the Health for All Coalition and I think, you know, and I see a lot of the great folks that have worked on that proposal here, you know, they have always introduced a policy bill because even when it was in the budget, you could move that that vehicle to say it's not this proposal is not going away until we get everything that we want. And fortunately, that moment has come. Now, there is question, and I think advocates will continue to ask for a much sooner implementation date, and we'll absolutely support that. But, you know, the, the having a vehicle move forward even after June just shows that you're not bluffing and that you're not going to go away and the celebration doesn't end. I think mm. the other thing I, I would just mention briefly is for someone who works with community folks a lot, I, I would suggest you know it, for for lobbyists around the capital community, the budget process is difficult. Like I'm still learning myself. I'm not an expert at all. And so when you' you're, you're teaching the community how to come up and lobby and talk about a budget proposal, sometimes it is difficult. And so having a companion bill is helpful that because they they can point to something directly and they could hold their legislators accountable on where they're at. Depending on what it is, you know, some of the some of the budget proposals we've worked on are controversial in, in the eyes of others, not not to us. About you know fines and fees and the incarceration system and how we need to you know shut down prisons because we have too many. And 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 when you, have, you tie a bill to it, you can say, are you going to vote for A B X Y and Z or S B X Y and Z? Yes or no. And it's just kind of, I think, a, a way to, to, to teach community members so they have something tangible. But that's, that's mm-hmm. more so for the folks that are going to be working directly with community on the ground who are going to come up to Sacramento.
0: Got it. That's great. So you should be able, folks, to raise your hand. I, I am seeing I did get an email from Kathy Senderling, and I don't see her on here any longer. She had a comment to make, and let me pull that one up. She says, I would add that part of the calculus on whether to do both a bill and a budget ask is your author and how savvy comfortable slash comfortable they are with budget. Also, while I'd say not every budget ask has to have a bill, every bill that costs money better have an ask or you're cruising for a veto. I can't say yes enough to that. You don't need a policy bill if you have a budget ask. If you have a policy bill, you better have a budget ask. Parallel if that bill has funding attached, yes. Oh, there you are, Kathy, now I see you. Let me see, if I click on your link, invite to speak. You should have your mic on now. You could give it a try, but if, if not, that's okay too. All right, and then I see Joseph Viella says, "If there is a deficit, can you elaborate on how the reserves would be triggered?" Ooh, Scott, I wanted to talk about that. Talk about our reserves, quote reserves. the rainy day. Yes,
1: yeah. So this is this is one of the good news stories of budgeting and you know fiscal prudence in California. After we came out of the Great Recession, we went into that disaster with basically nothing in the piggy bank, which was why we ended up with huge cuts and pretty significant tax increases to help us get through that. You know, policymakers in Sacramento came out of that and and staff, they're like, we don't want to go through this again. So they put Proposition 2 on the ballot. I think it came out of the Assembly. Uh, It went before the voters in 2014 and was approved and basically just made us get a lot more serious about building up our reserves. So right now in our various piggy banks we have for the general fund at the state level there's over 30 billion dollars sitting in those accounts. So you know that doesn't solve every problem but that's a, a significant chunk of change sitting there ready to be drawn down in the event that we have significant shortfalls and we need to start plugging some holes in the budget. So you know there some of you on the call probably know there is an account specific to K12 schools and community colleges that has just under $10 billion in it. So that's kind of a Prop 98 thing. It doesn't help with the rest of the budget, but there's also a separate account that was created. It has just under a billion dollars in it that's intended to be for Alworks and Medi-Cal to help shore up those programs. If we go into a recession or otherwise see revenues drop. And now the big kahuna is what's known as the BSA, the budget stabilization account. It's also called the state's rainy day fund account. This is the giant one. It has around $23 billion in it right now. And almost all the the dollars in that fund are subject to rules in terms of how the money can be drawn out. So for example, get most of the money out of that BSA or that rainy day fund. The governor has to declare a budget emergency. There's a couple ways you get to a budget emergency that I'm not gonna get into right now, but basically it's up to the governor to push the button on that one and say, hey, we have a budget emergency. And if that's the case and the legislature agrees, it can take um, up to half of the reserve, the BSA, out in the first year of a fiscal emergency. So in this case, you know, there's, if there's $23 billion, they could take somewhere between 11 and 12 out during the first year if they needed to in order to close the budget shortfall. And then the following year, they could take the rest of the money out of that account. So again, if the, the budget gap is large enough, you know, 11 or $12 billion in the first year may not close all of your budget gap, but it will go a significant way toward ensuring that we can support really critical public services heading into the next fiscal year without the need for really devastating cuts and without necessarily having to think first about tax increases, even though there can be a place for tax increases in order to help us get through a rough budget patch.
0: Thanks, Scott. That's really helpful. I feel like all of this conversation that we are having is pointing to pointing to the complexity of budget. And so Joseph, no, not Joseph, hold on. Someone else tweeted, Roman tweeted, given that policy is increasingly going through the budget process, is the budget process something all future lobbyists are going to need to be more comfortable with? I would say absolutely, Roman. And I'll tell you, there's not a huge number of lobbyists that I would, I mean, I certainly don't know everybody and I'm not gonna claim I'm some sort of like end all be all of who's lobbying at the state house. There's not a ton of lobbying budget experts out there simply because it is a less understood. I don't know, I actually, I couldn't even begin to tell you so much that I think that becoming an expert will make you more effective in whatever policy you're trying to pass. I, I think there's no downside If anything, it will make you more effective in terms of your agenda. It will also just make you a better lobbyist, in my opinion, because they're so part of this. The conversations are really just so integrated into each other. And you know, the the reality is that so much of what the governor and the leadership are trying to do, their priorities are all happening through budget. So if you're just trying to get a sense of lay of the land. I, I can't emphasize enough following the hearings to get a sense of what kind of big ticket items are moving, you know, that that is just valuable in general.
3: Christina, could I could I offer a, a response to that, too? That's sort Please of do. part of how my own practice has evolved. You know, I came to a, you know, an understanding that, while a lot of groups love to do the bill work because we're trying to codify, you know, important important, either social agendas or, or legal protections or what have you in the law. And the bill process allows you a path to do that. And quite frankly, for again, a lot of nonprofit organizations, an opportunity to kind of push that message and tell that story. And, and it, there's value in that and you're lifting up this issue or these communities needs throughout that process. And there's this hook that the bill process <laughs> provides. But I became increasingly aware that absent the push for resources, it's sort of like I joke to people that passing a bill, like getting a bill signed by the governor is like being up at halftime going into the locker room. Like you absolutely have to have the capacity and the desire and the will to to execute on making sure there's sufficient funding for staff or materials, or contract, whatever is going to be needed. To, otherwise, you kind of have a paper victory. You know, you've kind of passed this law. But if you don't have more resources, you know, you're oftentimes counting on state employees and others to carry out these. And like some of, some laws you can pass are kind of discretionary with, that, with respect to how much they're enforced or implemented. And it doesn't really even happen until the money shows up. To, to illustrate the state's commitment to being, you know, serious about, about effectuating that policy. So I guess I feel like, yes, to Roman's question, like any lobbyist, it, it, both, it, both because there's more policy happening in the budget and also because there's only real policy getting fully effectuated when resources, you know, go behind it. I know we all, there's often heard the comment that, you know, where, where you put your money is where you, where you know what matters, and I think that is totally true. And if you really want to sleep at night knowing you've done right, you know, you're, you have a chance at changing the world for kids, animals, families, immigrants, you name it. You've, you've not just changed the words that are in state law, but you've got the resources to back it up
0: and make it real. That's a really good point, Jen. Very good point. Dante, is your mic open? Do you still want
4: to? Um... Yeah, it's still open. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Yeah, I, I left it in the chat too. I think having a, a relationship with budget consultants also is, is super important. They have a certain degree of autonomy, albeit they have to – Report back to their chairs of whatever different committee that they're they're actually chairing or what they're actually consulting for. But you need to make sure that you're reaching out to folks early on. They're the ones that are going to be negotiating on your behalf if you get their goodwill or if you present your proposal well enough and they accept it. I think that the consultants and the staff as well as they're the kind of key players that are the last ones in the room. So make sure that as you are advocating to elected, you're also not dismaying the folks that are at the table, really. So that's the only- Plus best, one, like, plus
3: one. <laughs> totally yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, Dante. I cannot thank you enough for saying that. The staff are where it's at. And if you ignore them or mistreat them, that is to your own peril. Chris, any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, and I did want to make sure, you know, for the community folks who might not have a lobbyist or an advocate in Sacramento, or, or maybe you don't really have capacity to have those relationships in Sacramento, you don't have the funds to really hire someone to do that. I think, you know, going back to a point that was made about finding your champion and your partner in the legislature, so a member of the assembly or the Senate, who's really gonna commit to being a partner in this is key for for community groups, and then also really looking at which staff is going to shepherd this proposal for you in the in the legislature is, is key because they have those relationships, right? They work with these people, and you want to make sure that the, the the legislator and 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 the staffer is gonna is gonna really continue that advocacy when you're not able to be there.
0: Hundred mm. percent, and I will clarify that budget staff are different than staff for the member themselves and you know one of the mistakes i see advocates make sometimes is they're not meeting with all the right people they're making assumptions that because they met with one of the staff of the chair for example that that's it but that's not the committee staff in fact the committee staff are the ones you really need to be meeting with some budget chairs have their own dedicated budget staff in their offices but not all of them do. And so part of your fall checklist could be just mapping out who, who is in your landscape of people to be talking with. And I've, I've done a lot of training on budget advocacy, and I can tell you the one constant is you are repeating yourself and having conversations basically all the time. And all of these cases, all of this proposal, all of this, you know, your, your explanation of what you're doing, you're just saying it to a whole constellation of people. In fact, I did a podcast interview with former Senator, now Congress member Kamlager, who was a subcommittee chair about this is a cast of characters, an ensemble, and you can't miss half the ensemble. You, you can't only have a conversation, for example with one house, you got to talk to both houses there, you know, budget is very different. Again, it's not linear in the way that a policy bill is in that you're going through one house, then you're hitting the second, you're doing both concurrently. And uh, I want to make sure other folks are able to ask questions. I mean, let me check. Cause I I'm a little bit kind of trying to figure this spaces thing out. I don't see any hands raised. <laughs>
3: While you do that, Christina, I wanted to just mention another benefit of budget advocacy that I didn't think about when I started working on it, which, and that is the degree to which it also builds a deeper relationship with the department or agency whom your policy bills, you know, who are, are affecting or the, the impact that the workload is created by by the legislature every year. Like the I've seen what can transpire when you're there, not just to help pass the bills, but you're there to help get them the resources to do the best job they can. It makes you a better partner with those with those state employees and their programs. And it brings you in closer to being able to be, be they, they want to be more engaged and you have less of a kind of strained relationship and you're more allied and all kind of working towards the same things. And when there are issues there, you have an ability to kind of have candid and safe conversations about it because you've shown yourself as sort of understanding and appreciating that with all new priorities, resources are needed and that folks want to be set up to win. And the more that you're like throwing some of your capacity and effort and community engagement around getting them those resources, the more that has potential for the future of that relationship and being able to get more done.
0: That's really great. Thank you, Jen, for raising that. I've been checking, scanning the chat here. So our esteemed budget chief, Jason Sisney, did post, I don't see him on here, but he did tweet out a fabulous graph from the LAO, that indicates the reserves amount uh, differentiating between the rainy day funds. And Oh my God, the prop 98 I'm not even going to get into it. This is where I'm like smarter people than I can figure this out. But that is in the chat. Rachel asked, Rachel Muller asked, how do advocates find where there are funds that might be available for reuse or repurposing? Great question. What I can tell you from my my experience, there is no necessarily place to look so much as people to ask. And for example, I would look at the spending package that was just passed on June 30th. And I would look at what big pots of money were allocated for different issue areas how much of that money was kind of blanket authorized like really just sort of handed over to departments and agencies for their discretion to use and i would start talking with the departments and the agency heads and ask them for you know how much is of this is allocated of these funds how much you know do they have basically discretion to use and these are going to be a little bit more nuanced conversations. Not that you're out trying to steal other people's money, but in terms of really getting a lay of the land on pots of cash that maybe were appropriated but didn't necessarily find their way to a home yet, in my opinion, that's going to be where you're going to get that information. I welcome other folks' take on that. <clears throat> that. That's a great question, though, because this concept of repurposing seems to be a theme. All right, going back to, oh, Jason, you must be on here and I just don't see you because I would love for you to speak. Jason says, deep relationships with staff knowledgeable in the fields in the executive and legislative branches. Yes, 100%. Administration typically will make proposals for some such shifts in every budget, especially in deficit times. That is true. So in the administration's proposal in January, they may be actually proposing to move money around that they had prior appropriated for other purposes. And so the devil is in the detail, guys. The Jan 10 budget is not just the summary that you read on the Cal budget website. There you go into each department. They have their own very, very detailed, at least in social services, which is where I did the bulk of my work for a long time in this department of social services, their, their local assistance estimates. These are hundreds, if not thousands of pages that break down each line item, what the proposal was, I mean, down to the nitty gritty. So I want to encourage you all, if you haven't figured out where that is housed in your issue area, you, you should start looking and, and start with the department's, that are the administrators of the funding in your area. I can guarantee on their websites, you are going to find a wealth of budget information you didn't know existed, such as what they're, you know, really the minutia of what the, the dollar amounts are, how much it costs them to do things in prior years, again, how much money might be left over, and all of those type of questions. Let me check that nobody's raising their hand. Okay, let me go to the chat. How is the new class and transition to new speaker might impact the budget negotiations? Ah, Joseph v- Viella asking the $10,000 question here. <laughs> I'm going to be super blunt and just share my thoughts on this because this is just how I, I roll. I get a sense that there's not a lot. Well, I take that back. There are legislators in my experience who are not terribly knowledgeable about how the budget works. And the truth is, I kind of understand that because if you're not on a committee, unless you're dedicating time to sit and observe the process, I mean, I bet you that they do in onboarding, right? Like we know that the new members of the assembly will actually be in town tomorrow for training. I'm sure that there's budget training. However, if you're dedicating all of your time to all sorts of projects and not like hyper-focused on budget, the truth is you probably won't understand it all that much. And my advice to new members has been try to get an appointment on a budget committee so that you have the time to basically really figure out how this stuff works. But if not, like really dedicating time to do that, because that's just going to help you be more effective in general. I think that's a great question, though. We, we are going to have a new class, a huge class, you know, 30 plus members who are learning how this stuff works. And guess what, advocates, you can be very helpful to them <laughs> in terms of sharing your wisdom with people, right? All these folks are coming to Sacramento trying to figure this stuff out.
1: Christina, this is Scott. Can I jump in quickly on that?
0: Of course you can.
1: Yeah. No, one thing that occurs to me is so they've got the new speaker getting on board on July 1st, I guess. Important to remember that the budget is never really done in June. So they're going to have, you know, one initial version of the budget package for the next fiscal year will be passed and put into place on time. But, you know, they always come back in August and September. There's going to be. budget bill jr there's going to be possibly additional trailer bills so one thing i've been wondering is to what degree will there be consistency right are we going because it's all basically one show that continues through the summer but are we going to have a new cast of characters sort of moving on to the stage in the Mm -hmm. middle of the process who have who weren't necessarily deep in the weeds on the negotiations in may and june and all of a sudden now they're showing up in july and august just i would be curious how that might impact the process in terms of like consistency across those months
0: that's a really good point and let me say this being that i i am i'm a bit of a old hack on this under the brown years i will say by june 15th budget was for the most part done meaning that your most of your trailer bills and the main budget bill were negotiated and done and voted on by June 15th as Scott is pointing budget process has been extending into the remainder of the summer more and more over the last couple of years and it only goes to show yet again how important relationships are with staff because here's the reality staff are the ones that will tell you what is actually going on When it is not entirely apparent what's happening, a lot of budget is not, you know, this is important to understand the policy bill process for the most part is mandated in the constitution. The deadlines of which there are many are all out there. And the process is very, very public budget is to a degree, very discretionary for leadership. And so if you're not like, you know, in the mix trying to figure out what's happening, it could be Possible that you miss things. And so that's another reason why I want to encourage folks to have relationships with staff. Let me go to Sasha and add her as a speaker here. Go ahead, Sasha. Are you there? I don't hear you. Let me go to Carlos Amador. Let me add you as a speaker. Hey, Carlos. Hello. Hi. Hi, can you hear me okay? Okay. Yeah.
1: And was Sasha able to unmute or get promoted?
0: No, I, I don't see her line for speaking here Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. I I know she was. Yeah, she may have a comment as well or a question. But thank you for for taking on. I recently just joined the Safety Net for All Coalition, working on you know bringing unemployment benefits for excluded immigrant workers. And so just was thinking if you or others can maybe weigh on the fact that you know Gavin Newsom just won re-election soundly. And also just the rumors of like future presidential ambitions. How how does that, you think, may impact his support for like important economic budget proposals like the safety net for all proposal and others?
0: Mm, that's a great question. I'm willing I would to, love to.
3: Oh, go ahead, Jen. I was going to. I saw a question related to expectations around the new administration earlier. And I, there's a story out in the L.A. Times today that I think is. Worth of worth considering, which is that you know posits that the governor is going to be focused on implementation and of some of the bigger ideas. He's he's put a lot of ideas out there. Some several of you know many initiatives have gotten underway in the last few years, and I think the governor, whether whatever his future ambition would be, will be judged on the basis of the success or failure of those initiatives. So I would expect a lot of energy coming from the administration to to make sure the things that are they have already staked their reputations and staked as like priorities are are working to the best of their ability are funded to do that and so i think that will pose a challenge for those of us that will continue to have new ideas we want to bring in fi- figuring out a way to narrate or message your proposal as helping support that that success. I know I'm thinking about that in various of my clients' initiatives, problems we're trying to solve. How do we, how do we characterize them and 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 authentically make them part of, of making sure existing commitments are successful?
0: Thank you, Jen. Chris, any comments you want to add?
2: Yeah, and I and I I think it's really about you know the being very direct with your messaging and ensuring that any type of win that the government may provide in a in the budget isn't co opted right and ensuring that you know you're very direct on what the purpose of safety net for all really means for you and your coalition so that he's he's held accountable because I think a lot of us are committed to expanding the California safety net for many many reasons and then also the proposal that you're all proposing and the governor can walk away and say I have strengthened California's safety net and it's a, it's a safety net for all and he's done that in, in some ways but we I think just messaging and 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 is really key and then, and then I think you know thinking about how is this gonna play out on the debate stage for him and 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 really ensuring that the conversations around this proposal is not lost in in, in what the media is talking about when it comes to these communities.
0: That's a really good point. And you know, the politics here, some of us <laughs> some of us are probably have lots of thoughts. We don't necessarily wanna put on their spaces, but that is a great question, and I think we should have those conversations. That, that to me is the, the, the deliberations, right? This is the strategy behind closed doors that you try to, to figure through in terms of your messaging, et cetera. There's so many good questions on the chat. I'm just going to keep going as long as folks want to because it's you know just really fabulously thoughtful questions. Sasha asks, do you have examples of major budget wins in times of budget shortfalls, What was it and how did you do it? What do you think was the most key to your success? I will tell you one of the highlights of my career. we, When I was with UDW representing in-home support services workers in 2016, we were successful along with SEIU Local 2015, which also represents IHSS workers. We were successful in getting the Brown administration to fund overtime pay for IHSS workers for the first time in history. And 2016, we were still coming out of the recession. We were absolutely not yet in revenue plethora that we've been in the last couple years. It was the the hardest, most gut-wrenching campaign I've been a part of. It was a, at the time, annual ongoing appropriation of three hundred million dollars, which by now has got to be way more than that, simply because the number of ISS workers is, continues to increase. Imagine doing that when you're coming out of the recession. And Governor Brown, if you if you didn't have the luxury of lobbying his administration, he was a notoriously fickle governor, and. Any new spending was was just extraordinarily difficult to get. And so I say that because that was, I, I, when I look back, I would say that was probably the highlight of my career because that money was literally overtime pay for among the most vulnerable minimum wage, mostly women of color workforce in California. And it, it just was such an honor to have played a role in that. And so I'm raising it to say it is possible. You had two major unions with, you know, significant resources. We had to organize the legislature almost, I would say, 100%. We needed both caucuses in demanding from leaders and the administration that this money be in the budget. We organized the shit out of the legislature. And I mean, and don't get me wrong, leadership was on board. It wasn't like we had to convince them. But to keep leadership on board, you keep this caucus like an iron, you know, united front behind them, right? It's, the leaders enact what the caucus wants. So we, we spent months organizing the caucus. To the degree to which, you know, we had dozens and dozens of co-authors on our bill. You know, we had the hallways blanketed with our posters, which, you know, we don't have the ability to do in the spring swing space anymore. But it it was the ground, it was the grassroots organizing of the workers that made that possible because we had event after event after event. When I say we organized the shit out of the legislature, I mean we brought the workers to Sacramento and we had in district lobbying. I mean, we did everything. So it is possible. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. It, it is a formidable task to take on. And I think in, if an organization is looking to do big things, like absolutely let's do it. Um, I just think, you know, from a historical perspective, at least in a prior administration. I'm not gonna say, you know, Gavin Newsom is Jerry Brown. So things do play out, have been playing out differently in this administration for sure. Let's see if there's hands raised here. Sasha, I'm gonna add you again. Are you there? Now you're on mute. Ah! Okay, I'm gonna go back to the chat. Let's see if there's other questions. Scott has put in some fabulous resources from the budget center for folks who want to understand. If you don't subscribe to my podcast, I'd love for you to do that. It's blueprint for California advocates. It is on all the major podcast platforms. I do episodes on the budget where I bring, I, for example, I had former chair come logger on. I've had former members of the administration to talk through some of this inside baseball. I do also on my website, Have some resources that you can find. There are documents on the Senate and the Assembly website. And I know Budget Center has a powerful presentation on how budget works as well. Let me look to make sure I'm hitting up all the questions. Oh, Vivian asks, can you explain what it means to have a legislative champion for your budget ask? What kind of lift are you asking them to make on your behalf? How should we think about whom to ask? That is such a good question. Can I pass this to you Chris and then we'll have Jennifer talk?
2: Sure, sounds good. So I th- I think, you know, you really want to lay out the details of the proposal to the legislative legislature when you're when you're asking them to champion it and and really talk about commitment and I think it really depends on the type of organization you are or who you're representing, you know, for the folks that are are back home in district and don't have a Sacramento presence. I think, you know, making sure you, you let them know about the capacity constraints that you have. And then, you know, some, some legislators are really good where you have very frequent check-ins with them and, and be able to, to strategize with them. And I think that's one key thing I look for when I look for a champion is someone who I can strategize with oh. and figures out who, who they're talking to and who I'm talking to and how do we do those things together.
0: Yeah, I would say it's the same with a policy bill. You do not want someone who's helping you in name only, of which there are many that will be like, yeah, sure, I'm on board. And then you really never see them again. You need someone who's going to be with you, who's going to strategize with you, like like Chris just said. Jen, any thoughts?
3: Yes, and the more the closer that person is to being a member of that budget sub or being its chair, <laughs>
0: the better. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, right, be strategic on who you're talking to. If you're if you're looking for money in a certain space, getting a chair in that space is going to be really fantastic. Here's the other thing you need to keep in mind, right? And this is the again, the behind the scenes, right? How many other proposals are they working on? How much time and energy are they going to give you on what you're trying to do, right? You need them to be a partner in your in your campaign they will they can be very helpful they they can play a role that you simply can't be because you're not a member of the legislature so i would say in your decision making is who's all in like who is willing to use their chips their political capital to help you advance those are the folks you want right like the people who are really all in Mm -hmm.
3: and i would suggest the way you know they're all in is what have they run on? Where do they come from? Like what's important in their communities? What did their campaign platforms say if they're new? What bills have they run and really like left it on the floor for in the past? I, I usually suggest folks also talk to organizations who've sponsored previous bills with different offices to get a feel for how that went. But but truly, like we're advocates trying to make things happen. But these are the electeds and they can't they're spending their time coming to Sacramento, you know, a lot of them to get important things done. So looking at their record, you know, the past is the best prediction of the future. So in terms of their ability or desire to go all in, it's going to be because they are not brand new to this issue they're they're coming to you saying i want to lead i've been doing this like i care about this i recognize you all as a go-to resource i see your community's needs i this is what i'm here to do
0: right good point good point i see this wonderful question from eduardo martinez where he says let's say you're advocating for a proposal not in the budget that you're trying to get in the process can be opaque that is the understatement of the century how often do you check in with members and staff on the proposal without being a pass? That is a really good question. It, there is an art to this, guys. I, I think it is your gut, but you have to err on the side of persistence and consistency in your communication. And in fact, if Dante is still on or any other budget staff who want to speak to this, You know, you have to remember that these folks are getting hundreds of emails a day. So if you send an email on Monday and you've not heard back, say it's, you know, something that's relatively urgent, it's Friday and you haven't heard back, you got to re-email and and go back to them. It is not personal. It is that they are pulled in 5,000 other directions because you are not the only lobbyist asking for stuff. And it is actually contingent on the budget advocate to keep your ask on the radar and you cannot just make the ask have one meeting and call it a day you will fail if you do that it is a persistence question but again you know using sort of your gut check to like when have i when am i now causing more harm because i'm just annoying the hell out of them right I think to me, I just try to be honest and say, you know, listen, I'm just trying to keep this front and center for you. And most of the time I've had staff say, thank you. Yes. Keep doing this. If you get a lot of polite, you know, thank you, but no thank yous, you might want to receive that information a little bit differently. This is the art and the dance of advocacy, right? Like this is like, there's no, there's no science to this so much as like, it really is your emotional intelligence telling you when when it's time to back off but you will fail if you don't stay on top of everybody all the time
3: well and christina too we talked about coalition building if it's just your voice that's coming at them over and over Mm. again i -hmm. mean you need to be coordinated with others so that they're not you know again you're not bombarding these staff but if you're not getting a response maybe there's someone else who can engage whether it's your member's office or another member of your coalition so that you kind of, A, that's the benefit of, they hear from more people, they're hearing who this is important to. And remember, I think it's a kind of key factor that in, in both houses, but they're they're really interested in serving their members. Like they're yeah. there to help produce those priorities. So the more member engagement, and maybe maybe that makes the lobbyist or advocate's job to be pushing on your champion and yeah. pushing on yeah. other members of your coalition to coordinate, but not you exclusively doing all they asking.
0: Very good point. It just opened up Dante now to speak. Dante, do you want to just give a quick intro so folks know who you are?
4: <laughs> oh yeah, more than more than happy to. Dante Golden here. Formerly, I was in the legislature for about four years. I came from the sub one world and on the Senate side. My boss was Senator John Laird, so I was his personal staff, along with staffing him on budget proposals as they came in, alongside the budget consultants. So I, I work closely with budget consultants on the higher ed K twelve and in pre K side. So budget process advocacy. It's I'm sure I'm talking to some folks in this <laughs> in this space on the other side, but um, yeah, I mean, just just to, just to ditto what. Whatever, what everyone else said. I mean, it's it's more of an art that it's it'll take time to kind of figure out. You have to be a kind of pester, but in like a really good way. Don't take it personal when staff don't email you back or budget staff don't give you a response within a couple of days. They are drowning at every single hour of the day, oftentimes working through the night. And just try to be thoughtful about it. I mean, if you have a budget proposal and your champion is the chair of the subcommittee, you obviously don't have to be badgering over and over again if you know that that is a priority for that chair. However, if you're working in coalition with folks, I mean, you can kind of strategize as you reach out during this time of the year or you reach out then it's just you want to kind of be strategic about about it it, 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 it is art it's not set in stone budget is at the discretion of folks and just to, just to jump on top of that, I mean, there are basic questions you should probably have answered before you go into to meet with those budget consultants when you meet with them. Generally, what is the fund source? Is it a general fund, uh, uh, a special fund? Is it a district-specific or statewide request? Uh, is the funding that you're asking for, is it ongoing or is it one-time? Try to make sure that as you're pitching it, that you're pitching your proposal as fixing like a real-world problem, which has actionable and innovative solutions that are worthy of that investment versus ones that are identifying things to throw money at and are not fully baked that's not to say that ideas that aren't fully baked can't be vetted on and worked on with budget staff but i think that framework also helps helps them know how serious you are with with your time and with the ask that you actually have i mean also highlight is it a caucus priority if not can you go to that caucus and make it one of their priorities as well mm. quarter ask is it again is it the a member ask from this So just there's a lot of different moving parts around but identifying your coalitions and moving yes. outside is just it's so helpful
0: Thank you so much Dante, what a unique perspective. I didn't realize you you're no longer working in the legislature. So I'm so glad you're on here. So let me share this because we're getting at 3:40 and this is just such a fabulous conversation. Welcome everyone to keep the questions going in the Twitter thread here and you know folks should just, you know, answer as they as they can and I want to offer I am putting together cohorts of justice-minded organizations that do want to get involved in budget advocacy, who aren't going to be able to hire a traditional lobbyist. For budget reasons, I am organizing group consulting that is at a lower price point and that can give guidance and advice in the process. If you have any interest in that, please reach out to me via DM or just email me. And I would love to talk with you about it because I am really passionate that this information shouldn't be behind gates and you know folks need to know how this stuff works so that they can get access to resources that their communities need and so that you know we can keep building the california that we want and the truth is the legislatures you know the legislature needs our input you know they we are the ones on the ground with the proposals that will actually direct money where it should be going and If we don't know how to access the process because it's, you know, something only highly paid lobbyists understand, then there's something wrong there. And so I'm very much trying to make this information accessible to folks. And so again, if you have any interest in joining a cohort and doing group consulting that I would be able to provide at a lower price point, please do reach out. Jennifer is an esteemed lobbyist as well, and I... Don't want to say if she's inviting any more work, she probably isn't, but there are a number of us that, you know, are in this for the right reason. And and I, I, I encourage you to reach out for help when you need it. Cause this, this is not the easiest stuff to understand. So let's see any last call on questions or comments. Awesome. I am so happy. This was just absolutely stellar conversation. Please check out my podcast. It's Cal- sorry, blueprint for California advocates. It is on all the platforms. This is the type of episodes I produce. It is tactical advice. It is not policy debates. It is how you actually win. Because my goal is to share this information so that more justice oriented folk are able to access this process and be successful in getting resources and policies that our communities need. And so please go check that out and give me a follow. And hopefully we can all stay on Twitter for a while longer. That sure would be awesome. So thanks all for joining. I hope you join me again. We'll be having more of these conversations again. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. If you're liking the content that I am producing, I would love to hear from you. Please connect with me on Twitter. I'm at KBossHamilton, KBASHamilton, K-B-A-S Hamilton. Would love to hear your thoughts, get your feedback, suggestions for future episodes, and leave a positive review. I would also appreciate that. That lets other people know that they should check out the podcast as well. Thank you.